Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Catherine Ingram. The following is excerpted from a session of Dharma Dialogues held in Lenox Head, Australia, in February of 2018. It's called On Shame. I also want to express my gratitude to those of you who've recently given donations and those of you who've given donations in the past. It's not only financially helpful for the production, but encouraging to keep the podcast going. Thank you so much. If we were made the offer that you could have inner freedom or a million dollars probably most people would pick the money right because the money might represent freedom of some sort that that's often how it's associated money in and of itself doesn't do much. It's either some digital numbers flashing on a, on a screen or it's some paper or some coin. But you can't do much with it until you exchange it for something. So it, it's only a representation. And why people crave it is that in many cases it represents the idea of freedom. If I have that money then... Now, it doesn't always work out that way for them either, does it? Even if you have the money, even if you have a million dollars. Sometimes people get killed for their million dollars. Or people become jealous or people cheat them or any number of things. Or even just managing it sometimes for people is a great burden. But one hopes that it's going to be this experience of freedom But the offer is inner freedom or the money. Now, the truth is, we don't have that offer. But the good news is, you can actually just choose freedom. (laughs) You can actually just go directly to that. Nothing stops you. And what I mean by that is that it's all about how you use your attention at any given moment. You can just choose freedom. It's a habit. It's something that can become much more conditioned. It doesn't mean that it has to be every single second, right? It can be sometimes you are crazy. Sometimes you're in fury. Sometimes you're in fear. But the the experience of freedom is the knowing that you're going to be able to return to that that experience. And the more that you do, the more that you do, the more easy that becomes. And even in the most difficult moments, especially then,
Right now, one of my friends is dying in Melbourne. She doesn't have much longer, a week or two. And I've been in touch with the family every day. Um, and they happen to be Dharma people. <laughs> so I'm, I'm experiencing and, and privileged to witness the way that they're choosing freedom through this process in their, as, their, as the support team for their beloved, their very, very wonderful, beloved. It's an incredible thing to witness, right? It's a wonderful privilege to witness it. That even in that experience, where it's really, really, really hard, and where the mind can jump into fear, jump into future jump into intense, burning, horrible grief. And of course, it visits all those places. But then it defaults back to this radiance of presence, of feeling one's own aliveness, of falling into gratitude. Choose freedom. then if you do get a million dollars, you'll know how to use it well. <laughs> um, that, that was interesting. It, it, I don't know if I heard you right, but it's, it's as though you were saying if you were offered a million dollars or... Yes, I just, it just as a, as a kind of mental exercise. Yeah, I understand. Yes. But when I thought about that, I thought, well, actually, um, you can choose freedom anyway. You could accept the million dollars or you can lose the million dollars. But <laughs> it's nothing to do with whether you accept freedom or not. Yes, right. That's yes. what occurred to me. Yes. Otherwise, it could be a bit confusing that one might think that... But I actually you think either that, choose the material world or the spiritual world or something like that. But I think that yeah. well, my point was that I think most people in the world would choose the money. I think almost everyone on earth would do that, except the Dharma crowd who would might know better. But I mean, yes. if they were offered one or the other, I'm saying though that you don't have to. And as you're 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 seconding it, you don't have to only make that. It's like it's, it doesn't have to be that. Obviously, you can just choose freedom, and that's what, in fact, the money would have perhaps given you if you're lucky, right? <laughs> that's what people hope that the money will give them is some kind of freedom, either freedom from the worry of not having money or freedom to go travel or to do, do whatever they want on the material realm and have a lot of things. That's what people sometimes associate with freedom. I'm talking about, of course, a different kind of freedom that is fundamental and much more uh, steady because money comes and goes, especially if you're spending it, it's just going. <laughs> Yes, yes, I see your point because some people will confuse freedom with obtaining something wonderfully material and yes. then they'll be free. Yes. Whereas the, the other freedom is just that freedom that whatever situation, the, free, the freedom is there if you, yes. if you just yes. go for that. Absolutely, mm. yes. That's Because yeah. that's, that's there are many things which we could interpret as freedom somehow 
you know, but mistakenly. Different pursuits or projects or something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I think we can't help but, but do that, actually. I, I find that, yeah, I do associate that with certain things. What do you mean? Well, that, that it's kind of a, a way to a way to choose freedom through some through some practice or right something right in order to that perhaps all the right situation the right setting the right meeting or something like that sure yes there's always <clears throat> i mean that's the, that's the the false carrot that sits in front of us all on any kind of quest right whereas at any second. It's just how you're using your attention. That's the only thing that's going to give you a sense of freedom or not. There's lots of people who are very, very rich who are in a total prison in their minds, right? Their minds are a torture chamber, right? So it's, it's not inherent in anything else. It's, it's only about how you're using your attention. That's always what it's about. And so... I used to actually title my events Choose Freedom. That was the title of the... It would be underneath Dharma Dialogues, Choose Freedom, um, for many, many, many years because it became clear to me very early on in, in sharing this that really it's just a choice. Now, not everybody, I, I often make this point, not everybody has the mental wherewithal to direct their own attention. Some people just don't have that, unfortunately, but most people do. They just don't use it. <laughs> they don't really they don't really use the facility. So in this understanding and in this direct experience, you start to realize that you can habituate your attention. And it's not about it's not about any kind of philosophy or belief or anything like that. That's not what a spiritual life is about. It's about your your use of attention in presence. You actually don't have to believe anything. In fact, I recommend that. <laughs> what do you mean by choosing freedom? So, yeah. so, so what do you, you know, how does that... Okay, yeah, great question. Yeah? So it, it could be on two levels. One is that as a life choice, that you have an intention, and you have it, you do have it already, that you have as a life choice an intentionality that basically understands that that's how you want to direct how you're going to play this, this, this journey we call life. It's sort of like the big meta, the, the big meta view of what am I doing here? What am I doing with this life? You know, we have a few more minutes left in it. Um, how am I going to play it? Then there's the, in a way, the, the, the micro level, which is moment by moment, right? So you don't have to sort of be sitting like a cat pouncing on a mouse or anything, but just that there's this general intentionality 
that I'd like to live my life more in open space, more in a free flow, more in a, a kind of brightness of being, more in love, which comes in a way as a byproduct. And there's then the specific whereby there is a kind of vigil that happens, a light vigil that happens with what's going on with my mental state throughout the day. And it's not that, like for instance, in my own case, if I happen to be daydreaming about something or lost in thought about this or that for a little while, I, I, I don't care about that. I'm, I'm not bothered whatsoever. Where there's a little intervention is when my mind starts going down a track that becomes very, very problematic. What I mean by that is that it's starting to, I'm just starting to spook myself about something, right? Usually a worry, a future picture, piece of news I read, then I extrapolate how horrible it's going to be. So it's like that, that, that it's on two levels, you could say, the macro and the micro. So, like, as I'm hearing that, like a determination, some inner determination not to go too far. Yes. Yeah? Not yes. to travel off to, into disaster yes. scenarios. Or, yes, you know that's I mean? it. Right. Yeah. A little dip into it that you can't help now and again. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but to not make it, you know, not to catastrophize unnecessarily. It's sometimes catastrophes are happening and you have to notice it. But um, to also... In a way, it's, it's, you know, I use the word steeping a lot, right? It's like a kind of steeping that you're, you're constantly returning to. So that mostly you're just floating along in an open awareness. And due to mind conditioning, due to personality conditioning, sometimes you get caught here and there. But, and that's not a problem, it's just that you reset as quickly as possible because the overall intention is to live in this brightness of being, knowing that that's really the best use of your life, of your precious human life. That's the best use. And that's the most beautiful gift you give to others. You give it to yourself and to others. And so that... that that intention actually gets stronger as you go. So I'm watching that, for instance, with my friends, my friends in Melbourne. I'm watching how strong their Dharma intention is right now. It's very beautiful. And that they're surrounding their loved one in that kind of clarity. Hmm. Yeah. It's not really fully formed, but just something. Could you talk a little bit about shame? Shame. Mm. Mm. It's something that's. It's something that grips me, or when I'm in the grip of it. It's something I get really, like, stuck, carried away in, like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, it's very common 
Um, and with all of these kinds of mind states that are troublesome and, and that hurt, um, the main recommendation I have is, well, there's two actually. One is to ask yourself this, uh, a little bit about the story of it and ask, is it really, really, really true? Is there any other frame you can put on it? That's number one. But number two is to really, in a way, uh, forgive yourself everything, you know, that whatever the thing that was causing the shame, if it was a valid thing, uh, to just forgive yourself that. It's like, um, it's like I feel like, um, like my experience of it recently, it's like my intellectual it's like I, my mind can totally do that, but it's like this fully programmed cellular thing that grips mm. me and it's not even necessarily about something I've done, but it's about um, like who I am, mm. like, like the shame is around, unworthiness around and yeah. Yeah. And it's... Um, it's like that intellectual or that conceptual kind of understanding that I'm okay. It doesn't even like <laughs> touch down on mm-hmm. any of that body stuff that's so like Yeah. Yeah. And I I um and I think it's actually ever present always in me and I just don't know how to shake it or what to even <laughs> It's like I don't even know any other way of being almost maybe little gusts of air where I'm not as immersed in it, but it's always here. And so if I ever have an experience where someone does point out a wrong I've done, it's like it almost just instantly triggers into that full-fledged feeling that's, you know. Yeah, wow. That is definitely a challenge. Um, I mean what it comes to me to say is it's like to to offer some reflections to yourself that counter the whatever the the blame and shame that's going on so start reflecting on the ways that you have been being good right that you have that you do have love and that you have shown mercy to others and that you have you know gone the extra distance when even when you were tired and that you have tried and tried in many ways that no one ever noticed right so start is my recommendation to counter this story that's so deeply lodged that you can't ac- even access it hardly start countering with just other kinds of reflections. We're all very complicated beings, right? And we've all screwed up a lot, right? Um, you're not the only one who ever screwed up, if, if that's the story. Um, sometimes people inherit unworthiness from things their parents told them. Um, one of my best friends deals with this, and she's so good and she's so successful and she's you know and tries and helps and does everything 
But her father indoctrinated her with a belief that she was never good enough. So even now, she still struggles with that story. And she's very self-aware about it. She has enough distance from it that she can see it for the madness that it is. And yet it does arise for her as well, just as you're describing. It's just kind of like cellular, like you said. Um, But... And you don't have to actually eradicate that entirely, because if you thought that you did, that would be yet another battle you set up, right? So what I would recommend is that you work with it in terms of challenging it and countering it with with another narrative that's probably equally true or more true, right? And that's what I mean when I say forgive yourself everything. It's sort of like, you didn't really do you, by the way. (laughs) You grew. Some people fed you food (laughs) when you were little. (laughs) And um, you grew. And, you know, a personality formed due to all kinds of conditioning and genetics and all kinds of things like that, right? One of my friends has a great line, I am not my fault. <laughs> and, um, and so to really understand that truth as well, that you're, you're just at the effect, you're just experiencing this creature. Um, and you're doing your best with managing your attention in the experience, Right? But in a way, it's like this package came de- delivered, and now you're working with it. You, you know, you're managing it. Um, I often speak of basically taking care of the Catherine creature, who's a very demanding animal, right? <laughs> you know, and that's the experience of it. You know, um, <laughs> and and even as demanding as it is. Um, it used to be far, far worse because the mind was crazy, right? So that part has gotten a lot, lot better. Um, (laughs) um, And so what I'm suggesting to you is to, to find a new narrative that you can start running, streaming along, right? That, you know... When these feelings of unworth and, and collapse and shame and all of that arise, allow yourself to say something that is true. You don't have to make it up. Something that is true. You know, well, what about the tender moment I just had with my friend or my lover or my child or, or my parent, Right? What about the little sacrifice that I did in in this or that circumstance? Right? What about any number of things, you know, no doubt that you can find Yeah. And just allow just a kind of just a kind of warmth to your own dear self because only you know what you've suffered, right? Only you know how many times you had to be brave despite what you were dealing with, right? 
Only you know all of that. So only you can really reflect on it. And another, another little trick I would offer in terms of a reflection is if you were a parent to yourself, and let's say you adopted you as a parent who adopted you, right? How would you be then to this young woman? How would you treat her? I had a friend from overseas for one month and she left yesterday. And then I drove the car home and then I was really like crying and feeling so sad because he's a, you know, he's my home who goes away in a way, you know, some somebody, a, a very deep connection. Mm-hmm. And then I was really feeling sad and and crying. And then there somehow the dilemma starts in my mind. I was then thinking, okay, uh, I'm crying, I'm sad. Okay, see the bigger picture? See the bigger picture of it? And there was, okay, uh, there was really the thing like, Okay, things come up, things come up from Friday, from the session. And then I was thinking, should I now shift my attention or just let let it be, this sadness? Because also, then I was thinking, you know, um, things that come up, things that come up, and if I just shift my attention, it's very... Um, it's yes, no, let me jump in here and be yeah. clear on this. Let's say uh, you're feeling sad about something that has provoked sadness for a mm-hmm. good reason. There was a separation, a loss, a, a change that is was, you know... Um, you can be fully experiencing the sadness and the tears in freedom. You can, mm-hmm. in a way, you, you can be um, choosing to let yourself have that experience mm-hmm. while in freedom. When I say shifting the attention, I'm basically referring to situations where you're just unnecessarily suffering about just nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, in times of real grief and of loss and of, you know, of course, tears are the appropriate response. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. sadness is the appropriate response. But even then, as you're experiencing it, you can feel, it's almost like a cleansing of sorts. You can feel experiencing it in a clean, clear way, right? It's just, it's like the the psyche and the body are going through a process that they need to Mm -hmm. go through. I'm only suggesting the the interruptions and the and the uh, you know the intervention in situations where there's a kind of madness, a neurotic suffering going on that's just extra and not necessary. And even then, you might let yourself indulge it. 
You can even do that in freedom. You can even say, oh, I'm a little crazy right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. But then after a point, that gets ugh, enough of this, right? Yeah, yeah. And so uh, all of which can be happening in this kind of uh, ground of like this diamond clarity that knows the process and that knows you're not going to overindulge it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it, uh, I know in a way, I know in a way, uh, it will go. Mm. It will go. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But then I was not sure, should I, you know, <laughs> should I now mm, shift? But oh, it, 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 sometimes things are so strong, you just can't. Of course. Yeah, and yeah. you shouldn't in that case. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. It's, you don't want to be repressing anything, mm-hmm. and, and especially with some sort of spiritual idea. But rather, in this relaxed way, you kind of just intuitively, you just, you intuitively know when, okay, this mm-hmm. is enough already. Um, since the retreat, um, the New Year's, I've just found there's more and more ways to just, to soften to things that were a little bit prickly before. Um, nothing's really changed in life, it's busier than ever. Yeah. Everything sorted itself out with work. Great. Uh, a new one came up, so. And, um. Excellent. I've, I've found with the, I've lost, the, I've tried to keep up there, but. Hmm. Yeah, I've found with things like shame that were talked about, um. Whenever I've experienced a strong shame with a friend or with a situation, there's there's definitely a judgment attached to it. So I felt like there was a bit of space for the shame there. It doesn't need to be blocked away. Yeah. And that's a sort of forgiving yourself at the same time. Yeah, it is. And then once that happened, um, I found myself less judgmental to others. I didn't think I was a judgmental person, but it was under there. Yeah. It's just simple things. So Sure. It's like everything just worked its way out and then it can fall away. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, very so, good. So things are just falling away. and that's, <laughs> I know, it's like that, actually. A lot of stuff that used to be really hard and, you know... Um, becomes less problematic over time, you know, even though a little bit here and there. And like you, your point to the shame is one thing. The judgment about the shame is yet another. It's yet, you know, it's, it's like being twice bitten. So. Hmm. Feels like, um, like a softening around things. Like um, my son, he's three, he's this big. But sometimes I forget he's only that big. He's got such a big personality and he's very strong and demanding. And um, That reminds me that I can soften even around that well, without being a pushover because he needs a little bit of direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can walk good. with him yeah. in his frustration because he gets very frustrated with things he's still learning uh-huh. and I can come and walk with beside him in that frustration and be, there's less judgment and less 
why are you crying again? And <laughs> I can see why you're crying. It's frustrating. There's a lot yeah. of frustrating things in the world. So That's great. We can, we can walk together like that instead of butting heads. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, as I was saying, this, this, this uh, you know, sort of commitment to or, or, or a soft intention to live your own life in that kind of presence is a gift to everyone around you and especially a child who's under your care. I find with a lot of freedom, perhaps more in a material sense, comes a lot of doubt. Uh-huh. And I'm just wondering how you kind of deal with doubt. and um, Freedom in the material sense. Yeah, I mean, when things are kind of... Going well. Or there's a lot of space for things in life. Like there's not much kind of, um, like I've recently been in a situation where there's not much kind of tying me down. Yeah. So there's a lot of space, there's a lot of time, a lot of freedom for things. Um, Sometimes making that first step into something new or, you know, there's a lot of choice and a lot of, and and that and then doubt starts to creep in any time that a step is made because that yeah. framework that tight framework is not there right and sometimes if you have many choices uh, there can be a doubt of of like is this the best one yeah. you know you're, you're it's like yeah. a tyranny of choice correct um yeah I mean, I always uh, allow myself to um, change my mind <laughs> if I want, you know, like if I take a step into something and, you know, with all the best information at hand and think, okay, let's try this. This feels good. I'll try. There's a pull to it. I'll try it. Uh, but if it, if it doesn't, if it doesn't feel good and if there is some reason to um, change course, then I just will. I will just change course. Um, and a lot of times people don't give themselves permission to do that. Now, obviously, if you've made a commitment to a bunch of other people and you are changing course, it's going to be either inconvenient or even hurtful to other people, then, then that has to be really considered. Mm. But if it's just you on the line mm. um, and, you know, you're not obliged to, you know, it's like Gandhi said, um, my, tr- my commitment is to truth, not to consistency, right? Mm. My commitment is to the truth of it and not having to be constantly consistent with what went before or what I said before or what I chose before. Um, yeah. Mm. So it's also another aspect of this kind of attunement to a quieter, deeper frequency is that it also gives you a lot more information as you're going along. You're just so much more intuitive and sensitive to what's feeling right and what's feeling like it's, it's your path, whether in the world or in relationship or going on a trip, whatever it is. And you're not so much being dictated to by mental ideas, but rather your heart calling. It's like you're much more attuned to your heart's calling rather than some picture of how you think it should look. 
right? I should get this type of job. Long ago, I, um, I, I arranged for myself a job. I raised the money for it. Um, and it was this, it was to found this big organization called Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organization, a UNPO, which was for the people who were not recognized, the nations and peoples not recognized by the UN. And we founded this in The Hague. We did two major general assemblies in The Hague. Um, and we found ourselves representing 20 million people. Uh, we got leaders from um, many different tribes and nations in exile and got them all there and uh, put together this, this organization. So, you know, on the face of it, it's pretty cool. Like, you know, it sounds good. Right, sounds prestigious, and it sounds like you know a fabulous thing. But in the doing of it, I was not happy. I didn't. It wasn't lighting me up. It was a kind of drudgery, really. And it took time for me to recognize how really miserable I was in it, and that I was being driven really frankly by ego material to be doing it. It never was my calling or my heart calling. I'm not saying that it's not laudable work for someone, of course, but it just wasn't true for me. And yet I was I was um you know uh putting a lot of effort and energy into it based on this idea, this mental idea, until I could no longer do it. I just couldn't do it. Um, and uh, I, I quit. <laughs> um, and when I started doing Dharma Dialogues, when I started holding Dharma Dialogues, um, it looked like the craziest possible career path ever. I mean, really. Um, still sort of does. <laughs> But, but, um, but I, I loved doing it and I felt, I felt this was a good, you know, use of me. It's good, good use of my, uh, compost. <laughs> um, so that kept me, kept me going with it, right? Even in very hard times or times when it really looked like this is, silly to be doing in terms of hoping to make a living this way and all of those kinds of reflections but it just felt right and I kept kept going um, so like that you become very attuned to your own you know your, the whispers of your heart you hear them very clearly and especially when this you know this sort of um bypassing of the mental needs of the ego uh, is strong, right? Like when, when, the, when the, the ego material, even if it's still there, you see it for what it is. And you, don't, you don't let it rule. You just become more attuned to the pull rather than the push. That whole thing that I did with that organization was a push. 
every minute of it was a push. Uh, there was never any point at which I was thinking, oh, this is wonderful, this is great, this feels um, aligned, I feel my heart is open in this. It didn't ever feel like that. It felt glamorous in a way uh, that didn't touch my heart. It was just sort of like, this is, you know, this is... It was really, really an homage to my own sense of somebody. <laughs> right. And that was very um, empty calories. So um, when I started having Dharma dialogues, it was rather a humble affair. Um, very humble affair. <laughs> Um, my first, my first night was in Boston and, um, I had had, the reason I even got this idea was that Ram Dass had asked me to teach and I had co-led some retreats with him and I had really loved doing that. So I thought, oh, I'll try this on my own. Um, and I had gotten an old friend of mine to walk around Boston with me and put up flyers, <laughs> On one winter day in Boston, we put up a whole lot of flyers. And I rented a little church hall for $25. And um, and uh, I think five people came. <laughs> and I had a, a donation box in the back that no one was sitting at the table. And I think we maybe got $7 or something. So it was, I was operating at a loss. <laughs> And then I had to drive back where I was staying. It was about an hour and a half or two hours away. I had to drive back in the night. Uh, you know, that was, that was, those were the beginning days. And that went on. It, we didn't, it didn't change very much for quite some time. Um, and, uh, and yet, you know, somehow it was just, uh, it just sort of felt right. And, and I could see there was like a community coming back and back. Uh, you know, same people, mm. kind of like it is here mm. <laughs> again. Um, and uh, yeah, that was um, actually it was 1993 or four, 93 maybe. Um, you know, so it's all about, I mean, in those days, what I was doing, that wasn't. You know, that was nothing compared to that other thing that I had just done, right? Mm. That was a big world stage thing where the international press is having, uh, you know, trying to interview us. And it was a whole other animal, right? And now I'm just in these little church halls, you know, with a few people having, but having what I like to call, you know, deathbed conversations, you know, um, the, you know, deep, deep conversation, which is always what I loved, you know. So um, I was just right in my seat then, you know, and I had bypassed my ego needs, even though they had, you know, lurked about, and they still do. But I have learned to bypass a lot of that. Do you understand what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Is it on still? Yeah. Um, Catherine, I'm just curious to hear you share more about, because you mentioned the push and the pull. Yes. I just, 
I would love to tune into your experience of the pull. If you mm. could share uh, how that feels, what that is for you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, what's coming to say, it's not a perfectly accurate, but it's like, you know when you fall in love and you're helpless in it? Mm. Right? You know that feeling. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's sort of like something catches your imagination or your attention, right? And and you notice that your engagement with it continues to light you up, even with the idea of it, right? And so, you know, my moving to Australia, it was a pull. It was a pull that began years and years before I got to enact it, but it never left. It was always there. And even in circumstances when I was still in the States and hadn't come over here, hadn't moved over here yet, and I might be in very perfectly nice circumstances, but I, could, I always had this pull. A friend of mine, um, William Merwin, W.S. Merwin, he's a poet, um, he was being interviewed uh, on National Public Radio in the States. And he, he was from, I think he was from New York City, but he'd been living in Maui for 30-plus years and putting together this, um, this many acres of palm trees, of, like getting rare palm trees and growing little crops of them to, to save all of the different species of palm trees so he has this beautiful um scene going he's very old now um anyway that's another story but he was being interviewed and the interviewer said do you ever miss the city because he was in the city being interviewed at the time just as a visitor and he said yes sometimes when on i'm on maui i miss the city and he said but when i'm in the city i always miss maui and, and in a way, it was like that. For me, the pull to come here was like that. It was like, I, it was just, there was just this sense, like a calling, something calling. So that's what I mean by the pull, that you might have an idea that is out of the box. It doesn't make any sense. But every time you think of that idea, there's a flutter inside of your being, you know, there's a light, you know, there's just bubbles that bubble up, right? And, and then you find perhaps that the attention then notices ways that, that that might get enacted. And every time you step toward one of those ways that it could happen, the, the flutter comes up, you know, the, 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 the bubbles emerge. You could keep getting affirmed. Right? So that each step has that sense of, ah, yeah. And even with all that, even with, you might enact something fully, but there may come a time when it no longer feels that way. And that too, you have to bow to, like Gandhi said, you know, my my commitment is to truth, not to consistency. There may come a time that even your beloved, as we all know, when we've fallen in love and then love leaves or, you know, somehow it changes or, you know, 
then you bow to that. Yeah, thank you. This this last conversation with uh, the push and the pull stood out for me, and I think I have. I, I really know what it feels like to be in the pull, and I also know what it feels like to be in the in push. The push. <laughs> and I'm aware that just in my life, I have a curiosity going on. You know, yeah, I'm just having this open curiosity to just really being present to listen. Is it when there's push, is it what I'm doing or the way that I'm doing it? You know, so it's yeah. like this lengthy unfolding awareness process that's happening. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, of course, yes. Sometimes we can have the pull, but then the enactment of it might get a little muddied. Um, and that, so then you're listening to the specific in the moment. Like I said to Michael earlier, it's the, both, both the, the meta vision, the macro vision, and the micro vision um, together. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> And I also propose that when one is living at that frequency, you you rely on it for your ethics of the heart. In other words, you um, you know that if you take a step that isn't fully in your own um, heart ethics, that it won't feel right. And you'll step back, right? So another aspect of this is that the pulls that you start to feel are pretty wholesome, you know. They usually have to do with a, a kind of offering of yourself, a giving away the store. <laughs> Those are the ones that feel good, right? I really love everything you say, of course. <laughs> um, I'm interested in cultivating that inner freedom. So when something happens, particularly a bit what you were saying with the shame, but when you have these more body-based feelings that even you can see through, like sometimes I'm like, I know there's no basis for this. I'm not even engaging with it. Yeah. But yet it's there grinding away and then I lose my ground. lose that sense of that ground in a feeling of inner freedom. And it feels really hard to even to meditate. It, it feels false. It feels like you're trying to yeah. get back to some other state. And yeah. How do you not get hijacked by that, you know, and then it becomes a reality, you know, those, those strong feelings I mean, I in my own case, I um, I use anything at hand that I can in, in terms of, you know, if I if it's um, I might go take a walk on the beach, uh, I might call a friend, I might turn on something I want to watch that is going to captivate my mind momentarily. Um, I might make myself a cup of tea or. A bowl of pasta, you know. Um, I, I basically allow, you know, I don't force any kind of um, like having to be spiritual in the moment. I allow myself to use whatever I can to just move the attention sort of, because sometimes when it is stuck, you know, on a, on a very powerful 
thing that then is lodged in the body, right? It's almost like you need to digest it somehow. Yeah, and and also I'm aware that the that the neurochemistry is kicking up a lot of chemicals that are causing the continuation of it. So that's what I want to interrupt. I want to just stop the neurochemistry from continuing its toxic brew. And so I, I basically kind of give it, you know, a, a different, even even a distraction, right? Yeah, and course. it's all fair play as far as I'm concerned. It's just... <laughs> yeah, create another yeah. noise inside or create That's right. another thing. And then as soon as, you know, and then you, 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 you break it up and you get out of that mood and now you're in a different mood and then you can kind of go back to just being regular and, and cruising along, right? <laughs> yeah, that's how I do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right. And also just on the cultivating freedom, is there anything that you um, suggest to just strengthen that as a ground of practice, you know, like as a meta vision? What I really suggest is to really notice how much you love it when you're in it. Like when you're in it, right, just allow yourself a little note to self. Uh, <laughs> This sure feels better than being in the neurotic mind and, you know, right? Just just that. Yeah, and it's just kind of a little tiny uh, signal, you know? It's a little affirming signal when you're in it. Not to kind of pretend or anything like that. I'm not talking about doing affirmations or anything like that. But just while you're experiencing like you're in a kind of sense of ease... You know, just as with any number of situations, right, um, that we might find ourselves in noticing how nicely pleasant they are and thinking, oh, I want to do this again, right? Whatever it might be. It's just like that. It's kind of noticing that you're falling in love with feeling free. (laughs) And that calls the attention. Yeah. And conversely, when you're when you're in the neurotic mess, right? And kind of going on some old stories that are just making you crazy, notice what that feels like. Yeah. This has been in the deep. You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private session by phone or Skype and see my schedule of upcoming events, such as our spectacular retreats in October of 2018 in Italy or in New Zealand in May of 2019. If you're a regular listener, please consider making either a one-time or a recurring tax-deductible donation in any amount that is comfortable for you. Till next time.